Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Having done this podcast now for more than two years, I realize that I've learned so much and yet I still have so much learning to do. A lot of the things I've had the privilege to learn on a deeper level provided me with a better understanding of social issues within a Filipino context. Equally, there are a lot of things that have left me baffled. Some cases that I thought would be polarizing were surprisingly not, and some that I thought should not be polarizing weirdly were. Today's case is one of those. When I first heard of this case, I only really followed its timeline as it unfolded sporadically. When I finally revisited it and did a deep dive for this episode, I could not imagine how some people could side with the people who had inflicted so much of the pain in this case. But here we are. This case poses questions around our understanding of democracy, communism, and socialism as ideologies, as well as questions around morality, idealism, the sanctity of life, and perhaps also patriotism. And at the center of these are two young lives that, were it not for the people who loved them dearly, could have easily been forgotten and misjudged by the beliefs they proudly defended. This is the case of Karen Empeño and Sherlyn Kadapan. Mabuhay, Lagim fam. Welcome to another episode of Lagim, a Filipino true crime podcast. This is episode five of season four. If you are new here, make sure to follow, rate, and review me on the podcast platform you're using right now to listen to my episodes. Make sure to also follow me on social media. I've included links to all my social media accounts in the show notes, so make sure to check those out. To support this podcast, you are welcome to make donations through buymecoffee.com. That link is also in the show notes. Without further ado, let us start with today's story. And remember that details in this case might be triggering for some people, especially as today's case involves reference to sexual abuse and mutilation. So please take care of yourself whilst listening. Lagim fam, do you remember your high school days? What about your elementary or grade school days? 
As an older millennial, I know those days lie far, far behind me, but I remember them well. Well, the good bits, at least. When I finally got to college, I realized just how sheltered I was growing up. Sure, we hear about awful things on TV Patrol or read them occasionally in the Daily Inquirer, but as teenagers, we were generally so obsessed with ourselves, our reputation in school, our image, our bodies, the opposite or same sex, that most of what was going on in the big bad world, the nitty gritty of current affairs, truly eluded us. But in college, you get to meet people from all walks of life, of all creeds, religions, beliefs, ideologies, and social backgrounds. Every day was an unconscious and perhaps also conscious exercise in self-actualization whilst listening to discussions, discourse, and debates about different topics, abstract concepts, values, political views, and the human condition. We become our own person. We question things more and more, and we begin to look at the world very differently. We all develop into these more aware beings. Our next big decision then becomes, what do I do with all the knowledge I just acquired in college or in vocational school or in the school of life now that I have left the innocence of my teenage years and as I am heading into full-blown adulthood? For Karen Empeño and Sherlyn Kadapan, their choices would soon leave a mark on the whole country as it was going through a time of intense turmoil. Karen Empeño was an 80s baby from Zambales, born of an activist father, Oscar Empeño, and a teacher mother, Connie Empeño. As a small child, she would tag along whenever her father organized or joined a strike. Little Karen held placards at the picket line for the first time when she was only two years old. At home, Oscar made sure to play so-called progressive pro-worker songs and Karen memorized them, probably not knowing then what the words meant, but would later comprehend them as she grew older. There was no doubt back then that Karen was an activist in the making. She cared deeply about social issues, and she was smart, and she had spirit. In kindergarten, Karen already knew how to read and often read through the pages of Malaya and the Philippine Daily Inquirer. No surprise there, really. She was surrounded by books after all at home and had a father who taught her how to read. He taught all of his children to read at an early age and equally enjoyed reading to them tales of revolutionaries who fought against oppression. By the time Karen graduated from high school, no one was surprised that she got into UP Diliman, her college of choice. Karen took up sociology, but outside of her curricular activities, she chose to become a member of the League of Filipino Students, or LFS. She quickly found herself in the midst of like-minded people, fellow student activists. Her friends were very fond of her, remembering her to be a jolly, playful, and passionate person. According to one report, during one protest against a bill that would revise her university's charter, Karen was struck with a truncheon by a police officer. She stayed steadfast and did not strike back because doing so would have given the officer grounds to arrest her. She probably did not want to give the officer that satisfaction. 
She stood her ground and would later laugh off this incident, but it demonstrated to friends that Karen cared deeply for these causes. Beyond attending protests, Karen was good at organizing them as well. She even established the Anaknambayan chapter in Payatas in Quezon City. As she neared her graduation date, Karen decided that her final thesis needed to be connected to the activism she passionately embodied. The topic would have to elevate and center social issues that Karen cared about. This was when Karen eventually and perhaps inevitably landed on the topic of farmers, whose collective oppression throughout history has been subject to many momentous protests, bloodshed, and conflict in different parts of the Philippines. Karen was interested in chronicling their lives, and for this, she headed to Bulacan, where her path would soon cross with a former UP Dileman student, Sherlyn Kadapan. Sherlyn Kadapan went to UP Diliman a few years ahead of Karen. Before the two young women's fates became intertwined, Sherlyn was not only a student but also a student athlete who loved her family deeply. As the second oldest child in the family, she helped her parents raise her siblings. When she finally got into UP Diliman where she and her younger sister matriculated, She never really could shake off that big sister ate attitude. She had a big heart and would give the shirt off her back to protect her siblings. To help supplement her allowance, Charlene worked as a tutor, so she ended up juggling sports, student life, and a side hustle. It was not easy, and at some point, Charlene decided to drop out because she just could not afford it. Her family, in a way, could only afford to send one of their children to college, and Charlene wanted her younger sister to continue her studies instead of herself. Charlene, in reality, only had a couple of subjects left and was so close to graduating. She was doing well as a student athlete as well. Just before Charlene met Karen, Charlene's mother, Linda, encouraged her daughter to go back to school and to finally graduate. Now, whilst still at university, Charlene also became a student leader. She was part of the Beta Lambda Kappa sorority and was even elected as a department student representative. She was active in a few causes that affected the student community, but also society in general. According to at least one report, Charlene took part in protests against oil price hikes and the corrupt Estrada administration. Friends and classmates remembered her as a disciplined and hard-working young woman who nevertheless found moments to be silly and fun with friends. But activism coursed through her veins. She became more aware of problematic societal issues the more she joined and organized protests. Just like Karen, Sherlyn also experienced police brutality during at least one protest. According to reports, she was strangled by a police officer who was part of a squad hell-bent on violently dispersing protesters. This left an indelible mark on Charlene's consciousness, and soon enough she found herself wanting to understand more and more the plight of those who are oppressed in our society. As a result, she decided to live amongst farmers in Hagonoy, Bulacan, 
where her path would eventually cross that of Karen's. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. His name was Jollibee. Hardly anyone calls him Wilfredo Ramos Jr. His mother gave birth to him in the very first Jollibee fast food restaurant in Bulacan. So people started calling him Jollibee for as long as he could remember. He did not mind his nickname or the teasing that came along with it. 14 years after his rather momentous entrance into this world, Jollibee was clueless about how he was about to become a very important person in the lives of Karen Empeño and Shirlene Kadapan. And it all started on the 26th of June, 2006. Jollibee recalled that it was two in the morning when around 15 men from the armed forces arrived at his family's front door in Hagonoy, Bulacan. They knocked on their door aggressively and threatened that if nobody opened the door, they would start to open fire. The young boy remembered his father running towards the door as quickly as he could to open it. As soon as the men entered Jollibee's home, they started beating his father, hitting him behind his neck, and then tying him down. When the men saw the young boy, they also tied him down. Now immobilized, Jollibee could see that the men were going through his home. They were looking for something, or someone. Jollibee then heard the screams of two young women who had been staying with his family for a while now. They had both become quite close to Jollibee's family over the past couple of years, and to hear them fighting the men and screaming for their lives was horrifying and heartbreaking. The young women were, of course, Karen and Charlene, and at that very moment, they were being forcibly dragged out of Jollibee's home. Somewhere nearby, a farmer witnessed what was going on and ran towards the commotion to help both women. This, as it turned out, was a mistake. The farmer, Manuel Merino, who was in his 70s then, was also taken by the men, perhaps as a punishment for intervening and attempting to stop the violence being perpetrated against Karen and Charlene. Now, news of the abduction quickly spread amongst the townspeople and eventually Karen and Charlene's friends. However, the women's individual families would not learn of their daughter's fates until a full day later, and only by coincidence. 
When this finally happened, both families, initially independent of each other and not knowing how the fates of Karen and Charlene suddenly became so intertwined, did not waste time and started looking for the abducted and missing young women. They all headed to Bulacan, printed missing person flyers, and distributed them far and wide. Charlene's mother was especially adamant in going into establishments like hospitals and their morgues, believing that perhaps she could find her daughter there. For two years, the search for the missing students went on. There were rumors that Karen and Charlene were nabbed because of their activism, their closeness to the local farmers in Bulacan, that they had become enemies of the army who, at that point, were brutally fighting against communist insurgents in Luzon. It was said that perhaps both women were considered to have finally crossed over from being mere activists to becoming members of the National People's Army, the militant arm of the Communist Party of the Philippines. But none of these rumors were ever proven to be true. Specifically, no one could prove that both women were disappeared by members of the army who were acting on official or perhaps unofficial orders. And in the same vein, no one could prove that both women were part of any militant group, let alone the NPA. And so the search for Karen and Charlene continued, as well as the search for the farmer who was abducted with them, Manuel Merino. What was heartbreaking was whenever reports of dead bodies came about in the news or through word of mouth, the families of the three rushed to see if those bodies were that of their loved ones. Of course, they never were. And the agony felt by the ones left behind grew deeper and more painful with each passing day. By mid-July 2006, in an effort to force the hand of the military who were being accused of having sanctioned the abduction of Karen, Charlene, and Manuel, a writ of habeas corpus was filed by Karen and Charlene's moms before the Court of Appeals. This filing essentially boiled down to one thing. It sought to force the hand of the military to produce Karen, Charlene, and Manuel since it was the mother's staunch belief that the abduction was known to the military officials who were in power, who may also have ordered it. They did not believe that the abduction was a mere act of some rogue soldiers. By the 19th of July 2006, the Supreme Court ordered the military to bring back Manuel Merino, Karen Empeño, and Sherlyn Cadapan by the 24th of July. The military, however, continued to deny knowledge of the two young women and the elderly farmer, saying that they were not holding them captive anywhere. This stance was maintained by the military all throughout this case. Despite protests by UP students and constant pleas by the young women's mothers to finally release their daughters, the military was steadfast in their statement and position. When the military failed to produce the three desaparecidos, proceedings were initiated in the Court of Appeals and soon enough, one major player in the military became a central figure in this case as this story unfolded. He was Major General Jovito Palparan. 
As part of these proceedings, he was summoned to appear in court as the soldiers who were suspected to have abducted Karen and Charlene belonged to an infantry battalion he had command over. Palparan was summoned four times, and four times he failed to appear in court, ignoring the anguish felt by Karen and Charlene's families. In those Court of Appeals proceedings, however, we would learn a few things that were up to that point unknown to many who were following this case. Firstly, Wilfredo Jollibee Ramos was able to testify at last. Then came the other witnesses. Alberto Ramirez, who was friends with Manuel Merino, testified how he was rattled awake on June 28th. It was Merino, and he was in the company of several armed men. Ramirez was then taken aboard a stainless steel jeep and was interrogated whether he knew a Sierra, Tanya, Vincent, or Lisa, all aliases of suspected communist rebels. One of the armed men who was interrogating Alberto Ramirez described two of the mentioned women, and Ramirez remembered thinking that the description matched those of Karen Empeño and Sherlyn Cadapan. Another witness, Oscar Leoterio, also had a compelling story to tell. He said that he himself was once abducted by armed men and detained for five months. In those months, he soon learned that he was detained in Fort Magsaysay in Nueva Ecija. There, he saw two women who fit the description of Karen and Charlene. This was powerful and gave the families of the young women a little bit of hope. Nevertheless, that hope may have been quickly replaced by anger as soon as members of the military started to testify. To make matters worse, General Palparan, together with two other military officers, had to be treated as hostile witnesses, which simply describes a witness who is antagonistic to the party calling them, someone who is unwilling to tell the truth. In the end, the Court of Appeals dismissed the habeas corpus petition, saying that this was not the appropriate legal remedy since, quote, the main office or function of the habeas corpus is to inquire into the legality of one's detention, which presupposes that respondents have actual custody of the person's subject of the petition, end of quote. This is not the case here, or at the very least, the respondents have categorically denied they were detaining the women and Manuel Merino. The court in this case could not really do much, but it did something else. It suggested that criminal proceedings may be more appropriate. The court also referred the case further to the Commission of Human Rights, the NBI, and the PNP for separate investigations and further appropriate actions. This seemed like the most sensible thing to do, but Karen and Charlene's families were not too satisfied. In October 2007, they filed yet another habeas corpus petition that was not that different from the last one. At least that was what the public first thought at that time. This time, the petition nominated President Macapagal Arroyo as a respondent. The other respondents were AFP Chief of Staff Hermogenes Esperon Jr., PNP Chief General Avelino Razona, and two other individuals. Arroyo was eventually dropped as a respondent because, of course, she had presidential immunity at that time. 
Now, this petition also asked the court that an inspection of eight AFP facilities should be allowed. As a response to this second petition, the AFP said pretty much the same thing. They said in the proceedings for the first habeas corpus, something they then repeated in the second proceedings, that they did not even know Karen and Charlene. That as soon as news broke out about their abduction, they ordered an investigation to see whether members of the military were in any way involved. They also said that it was not true that there was a police report about Manuel Merino's death. In the proceedings for this new petition, we also got to hear from the police who seemed to have conducted investigations that did not bear much fruit, and at least one investigation remained unfinished. However, the most compelling part of the proceedings for this second petition was the testimony of a young man named Raymond Manalo. His testimony rocked this case and shook the families involved to their very core. In order to really gain insight into what Raymond witnessed, I will be heavily referring to a powerful article by journalist Patricia Evangelista in Esquire magazine Philippines. Her interviews with the people involved and the resulting article almost take on a life of its own as the words are given to us, the readers, unadulterated and in first person. It is already translated into English, but it does not lose the horrific nature of its content that drives home the gravity of what had happened to Karen and Shirlene, and also Manuel. As much as possible, I will quote huge parts of the article and maintain the first-person perspective. All credits to Pat Evangelista for this incredible interview and article. Raymond Manalo's ordeal started on Valentine's Day in 2006. He was only 22 years old. He was abducted by members of the army who then proceeded to beat him up badly. He was then forced to admit that he was part of the NPA, that he was a killer and that he killed many, many people. He admitted to anything and everything. If it meant the beating stopped. In reality, Raymond is a farmer's son and had nothing to do with the communist rebels. But there he was, in some sort of barracks, being beaten, waterboarded, and kept isolated in a tiny, tiny room. His ankles were constantly chained together and his wrists were cuffed. We walked like monkeys. We pissed like monkeys. We couldn't wipe ourselves when the piss spilled from the Coke bottles they left for us. One night, there was a man who came in and he said we had no right to be alive, that we should have been killed long ago. He had his combat boot shoved against my neck. He took the bottle of piss and poured it over my head and then poured boiling water, then a bucket of cold water. When he got tired of beating me, he started with Reynaldo. My brother's head was bleeding. The man said he would kill us. At one point, Raymond managed to escape. His captors burned through a whole forest just to catch him. And when they did catch up to him, the punishment was severe. 
Over the many months, Raymond was held captive with his brother Reynaldo and another man whose name you may have already heard before, Oscar Lioterio, he saw and got to know many different people. He talked about two men and a married couple. He gave the Filipino public a horrifying insight into what was almost always done with female captives and how the soldiers, their captors, regarded all of them as animals or even less than. The soldiers brought in two men and a married couple. The woman had burns all over her body. Oscar said her name was Teresa, that she was raped. She was raped and beaten until she shit on herself. She had already lost her mind when they took her away. That is, that is where we shit, where we pissed, where we washed, when we could. We never saw the sun, we never felt the wind. They gave us leftover pig slop once in a while and that was, that was all. Sometimes when the soldiers were drinking, they would take us out of the cage to, to play. The game changes, but it's usually the same. Two by fours, chains, maybe an open gardening hose shoved down your nose. I would call back to the cage after on my hands and knees. Sometimes some of us would disappear. Sometimes they didn't come back. Having been moved from camp to camp, he eventually was interrogated by who he identified as high-ranking officials, one of which was General Palparan. Everyone called him grandfather, but he was known as the butcher. Palparan warned Raymond to stop running away. He threatened him that next time the punishment would be death and not just torture. I can just picture Raymond thinking that it does not really matter what they did to him as either of those things felt like hell anyway and maybe, just maybe, death would be a tad better as the suffering and pain would at least end. According to Raymond, Palparan ordered him to tell his parents to not join any protests against the government anymore or military, to never file cases or to never cooperate with human rights groups. Palparan tried to endear himself to the 22-year-old man whilst also gently threatening him. At the end of this conversation, Palparan supposedly even gave Raymond a box of vitamins. The plan was to then take Raymond back to his home so that he could talk to his parents, communicate Palparan's orders, give them some money, and then leave again. It was astonishing how Raymond survived all these things for months, and it was because he managed to stay alive that his path was due to soon cross that of two young UP students. Raymond mentioned in his testimony that orders were given to soldiers to pick up two UP students, and they needed to be brought to Palparan directly afterwards. Raymond did not know then who these two students would be, but soon enough, that would change. I kept thinking of escape. It took us to Camp Texon under the control of the 24th Infantry Battalion. I made myself useful so they would trust me. I cooked, washed their cars, fed their animals, did the laundry. I was sweeping the floor one day when I saw a girl chained alone to the foot of a bed. At first, I wasn't allowed to talk to her. They would take off 
her chains during the day so she could do the soldier's laundry. She said her name was Charlene, that she was from Laguna. She said they tortured her the moment they took her and Karen from Hagonoi. She said it was Jovito Palparan who came to torture her. He hit her on the mouth until she bled. He punched her breasts and her stomach. He slammed planks of wood against her. She bled everywhere. He told her to admit she was a member of the NPA. She was crying while she told me. She said she wanted to go home to her parents. I met Karen and Manuel later. The five of us, the girls, Manuel, myself, and my brother, were taken from camp to camp, cooking and washing and cleaning for the soldiers. I saw the soldiers steal from villagers. I saw them bring blindfolded prisoners. I saw them digging graves. I saw them burn bodies, pour gasoline in them. Once I saw them shoot an old man sitting on a carabao. In April 2007, I saw Charlene lying naked on a chair that had fallen on the floor, wrists tied together, one leg tied down. I saw them hit her with wooden planks, saw her electrocuted, beaten, half drowned. They were playing with her body, poking stick poking sticks into her vagina, shoving a water hose into her nose and mouth. I I heard the soldiers force Charlene to admit who planned to write a letter. She said it was Karen's idea, so they dragged Karen out of her cell, stripped her, tied her at her wrists and ankles. She was beaten, water-tortured, and burnt with cigarettes and raped with pieces of wood. I, I was ordered to wash their clothes the next day. There was blood in their panties and chunks of blood in their buckets of piss. I was there when they killed Manuel Merino. They took him away and I, and I followed. I heard him begging and moaning. There was a gunshot. Then there was a fire. Remember that what was read out here was just a tiny part of Raymond's testimony in court. On rebuttal, Lieutenant Colonel Anotado and Colonel Eduardo Boyles Davalan were called to the witness stand. Anotado denied seeing or meeting Raymond. He also stated that it was impossible for Raymond, his brother, Charlene, Karen, and Manuel Merino to be detained in the Limay detachment, which had no detention area, he said. The Limay detachment in Bataan was mentioned in Raymond's bigger testimony as the place he and the others were transported to after being at Camp Texon. Colonel Davalan, on the other hand, testified that Camp Texon itself is not a detention facility, nor does it conduct military operations, as it only serves as a training facility for scout rangers. 
By the end of these court proceedings in September 2008, the appellate court ordered the immediate release of Shirlene, Karen, and Manuel, as it was clear, even to the court, that Raymond and Oscar's testimonies could not be ignored anymore. They gave statements that were deemed credible and indicative that the young women and the farmer were in the military's custody. In addition to their testimonies, another key witness also helped make the case against the AFP. This witness was Shirlene's mother-in-law. Shirlene was married at the time of her abduction, and according to her mother-in-law, Adoracion Paulino, on the 11th of April 2007, Shirlene and three other people who Adoracion suspected were soldiers paid her a short visit. Nothing big or eventful happened, but still Adoracion decided not to report anything to the police or to the Kadapan family. One can only speculate as to why she did not report that, but the court took this as a further evidence of the military's involvement in the cases of the three desaparecidos. In addition to the other orders already made by the court, the court also ordered the PNP to continue their unfinished investigation so that appropriate charges could be filed against those truly responsible. The court, however, did not think that it was necessary to inspect any military facilities because its order to immediately release the three abducted people trumped all other quote-unquote lesser orders. Now, as expected, the military challenged this decision. The Kadapans and Empeños also challenged the court in a separate petition. Their petition, as far as I understood, was two-pronged. Firstly, they disagreed with the court's decision to not have military facilities inspected. Secondly, they also wanted to essentially force the hand of the court to tell the military to produce their loved ones immediately. After all, the words immediate release were originally the court's. But then the court said that despite the wording of their order saying immediate release, it is just reasonable to believe that such action may take time in reality. The court is in a way saying, okay, the release will understandably not be immediate, but as long as you're releasing them, we're good. Of course, that is oversimplifying it, but I hope you get the gist. Several other petitions were filed back and forth until 2011, but the fact remained, Karen, Charlene, and Manuel were still missing, and no amount of motions and petitions were getting them back. By the time the Supreme Court got involved, the families of the desaparecidos had to also deal with all manners of horrible news in the years before. In late 2008, a former military camp was inspected, and investigators found burned human remains. This was one of the camps where Karen and Shirlene were held captive. This discovery lent legitimacy to Raymond's testimony. It was not clear from the reports I found whether there ever was a test or tests done on those remains to see if they were Manuel's or the women's remains. However, netizens largely believe that those remains were of Manuel's. To add insult to this deep injury, Jovito Palparan, following his retirement from the military, entered the world of politics. 
He was the figurehead of a political party that did well in the 2007 elections. In 2009, however, Karen and Charlene's mothers sought to disqualify him from running and winning a seat in Congress. This move was unsuccessful. Parparan was able to win a seat, a success that would never be repeated, however, especially because of what happened next in Karen and Charlene's case, but more to that later. For now, let us go back to 2011. By mid-2011, lots of things had changed. For starters, Makapagal Arroyo was not president anymore. This was important because she played a big and vital role in legitimizing the violence committed by the military. Back in 2006, a mere month after Karen and Charlene were abducted, she tone-deafly praised Palparan in her SONA, or State of the Nation Address. She called his work an insurgency project that was aimed at ending the long oppression of towns by rebel terrorists who, according to her, killed without qualms. She proudly named Palparan in her speech, saying, quote, Sa mga lalawigang sakop ng 7th Division, nakikibaka sa kalaban si Jovito Palparan. Hindi siya atras hanggang makawala sa gabi ng kilabot ang mga pamayanan at makaahon sa bukang liwayway ng hustisya at kalayaan. In the provinces covered by the 7th Division, Jovito Palparan is fighting the enemies. He will not stop until the people are free from the scourge of darkness and rise to the dawn of justice and freedom. End of quote. But all this bravado was gone by 2011. Arroyo was facing legal problems of her own and found herself on hospital arrest at the Veteran Memorial Center by late 2011. The most important development of that year, however, was something that the mothers of Karen and Charlene decided to do. They filed multiple criminal charges against Palparan and other high-ranking AFP officials. Palparan and co. were being accused of rape, serious physical injuries, arbitrary detention, maltreatment of prisoners, grave threats, grave coercions, and violations of Republic Act 7438. By July of the same year, the Department of Justice started mobilizing and seriously investigated the case of the three desaparecidos. Palparan still felt like he had some power on his side, though. He continued to deny any involvement in the abduction. Now, we previously talked about the court cases and the many petitions that ended up with a Supreme Court ruling. Despite all that, Palparan remained consistent in his position and even tried to run for public office again. Even when his own former bodyguard became implicated in the abduction, he did not waver in his position. But remember when I said earlier that Raymond Manalo's testimony could not be ignored anymore and was very powerful? Well, even the DOJ came to the same conclusion as the Supreme Court. Add to that the testimonies of Oscar Leoterio and Jalibi Ramos, it was no wonder that a DOJ panel found probable cause to file charges against retired Major General Jovito Palparan Jr. and his men for the abduction of Sherlyn Kadapan, Karen Empeño, and Farmer Manuel Merino on the 15th of December 2011. 
As soon as this was made public, a warrant of arrest was issued for Palparan and his co-accused. By Christmas that year, he was reported to have been seen boarding a plane to Singapore at the airport in Clark, Pampanga. He probably thought it was easy to slip away because at the same time, Typhoon Sendong ravaged through Cagayan de Oro and other parts of Mindanao. Everyone's attention was shifted from the desaparecidos to the typhoon victims and Palparan wanted to take full advantage of that. Unfortunately for him, and fortunately for the rest of us, his plane was quickly blocked upon orders by then Secretary of Justice Leila de Lima. And since that day, Palparan and another accused named Sergeant Rizal Hilario went underground. But Karen and Shirlene's mothers never really took their feet off the proverbial engine because whilst everybody was looking away and Barbaran almost left the country, they were making sure that their campaign to hold him responsible was kept alive in the media to the point that they implored the public to be on the lookout and help hunt him down. In the meantime, two of Palparan's co-accused, Felipe Anotado Jr. and Edgardo Osrio, of the AFP Intelligence and Security Group, decided to surrender. And Palparan? Well, sure, he was still in hiding, but his lawyer had the bright idea to talk to the press and confidently declare that actually, Karen and Charlene were very much still alive a statement that probably caused more upset amongst the women's loved ones. I feel like this may have been an attempt to misdirect and also manipulate the public whilst Palparan went deeper underground, going from hiding place to hiding place. After all, he was not ready to surrender or get caught. His lawyer and other people who were somehow speaking for him said that his surrender would have to be properly negotiated. They said there must not be any violence during his arrest and the whole spiel would have to be a joint effort between the DILG or Department of Interior and Local Government, the NBI and the Justice Department. The search for the disgraced general, of course, went on despite these negotiations, especially because there were tips coming in about sightings of the general in a handful of different places. By December, for example, he was sighted in Taguig, but let it not be misunderstood. He was in constant contact with his legal team because even with him hiding from the law, he still wanted to fight accusations against him. By April 2012, there was a petition lodged with the Malolos Regional Trial Court and it was by Palparan's lawyers and the lawyers of his two other co-accused. They wanted the court to get rid of a few very inconvenient things like the warrant arrest, the hold departure order so that the men could travel again, and they also wanted the court to suspend any court proceedings that involved them. However, the presiding judge was not hearing any of it. She denied the motions and criminal proceedings against Palparan and the others continued despite Palparan's absence. Criminal proceedings started in the second half of 2012. Raymond Manalo testified yet again and had to endure a pretty brutal cross-examination by the lawyers of the defendants. What made me sad, however, was to learn that Karen and Charlene's mothers also had to take the stand 
to recount their experiences after having lost their daughters in this abduction case. To have lived with that trauma for six years at that point and to have that magnified even more in such a high stress setting like a criminal hearing must have been tough for the aging women. No mother should have to go through something like that. For me, the saddest thing that was revealed in their testimony was something that had to do with Shirlene. As it turned out, Shirlene, who was married at the time of her abduction, was also pregnant. The pregnancy was very much in its early days and Charlene was not showing at all. This was heartbreaking enough to hear and learn, but for Erlinda Kadapa and Charlene's mom to communicate this very personal hurt to a court full of people was probably like sprinkling salt into an opened wound. This criminal case dragged on as criminal cases are wont to do in the Philippines. The year 2012 ended without a conclusion inside, and by 2013, those who were waiting for justice grew restless by the day. Their anger was not merely directed at the AFP anymore, but also at the Aquino government, who never really managed to give any satisfactory answer to the loved ones of Karen, Charlene, and Manuel. It did not help that Malacanang was not communicating enough to the families and the public in general who were merely wanting to see more engagement from their government. Now, sure, they offered rewards and increased those rewards as time went on, but there were no assurances that something big was being done to finally catch Palparan. This frustration lingered and festered, causing many to gather in protests, the arguably perceived lack of action by those who had all the power to make a difference. And it did not help that for the entirety of 2013, the criminal case was still ongoing and Palparan remained hidden. But things were about to change in 2014, eight years after the abduction of Karen, Charlene, and Manuel. The scene was set in Santa Mesa, Manila on a humid August day in 2014. After a three-year manhunt, the cat-and-mouse game to catch Jovito Parparan was finally over. He was arrested by members of the military and then presented to the public. People immediately noticed that he was barely the man he used to be back in 2011. He appeared gaunt and frail, but one thing did remain unchanged. He denied all allegations against him like he always did. In the same breath, weirdly enough, he also said that he stood by his record of aggressively pursuing communist rebels. He was quoted saying, I have no regrets for what I've done. What I did was for the good of the people. Charming. And this is what you need to understand about Palparan. He hates communists and he has a rather tunnel-visioned understanding of just about anything deemed leftist. The following is a direct quote from Pat Evangelista's interview with Palparan. It is a scary and unsettling insight into the man who was known as the Butcher. It is easy to distinguish a communist. You can tell by their body language. You have to be discriminating. You have to assess the individual. 
Maybe he believes that, that he cannot be involved, that he doesn't like communism. He's just trying to be a catalyst for change, but he could be eaten by the system he joins in. Meaning, you really cannot be neutral. You cannot really be moderate. All moderates will become communists. Once you're there, you are, you can, you have to be eventually, you have to be involved. Your belief is not, but you are. You can be involved in all their activities already. Your pronouncement may not be that radical, may not be that extreme, but if you are there, how can you fight the system if you are already part of it? Even though they are in government as party list representatives, no matter what appearance they may take, they are still enemies of the state. The party list members of Congress are doing things to further the revolution, the communist movement. I don't remember what they did, there are so many. They did many things, like trying to cancel the ROTC. Those who claim to be for labor, for press freedom, I would like to say that these are deceptions. I personally think I succeeded in my military career, I contributed to this country, I was successful, but I feel that I ran out of time. The Philippines, according to the New York Times, has one of the longest-running communist insurgencies perpetrated by the NPA. I've talked about communism in the Philippines in another episode about the Calabarzon killings, and I do not remember saying this then, so I will say it now, but... Our country's history with communism is complicated and should be viewed with an understanding of nuance. It is no surprise that Palparan has the views that he has when everything that is deemed leftist, including things like press freedom, better social structures, better working and labor environments, and protection of human rights are all, and with absolute conviction being put on the same level as communism on one hand, and the acts of terrorism of communist rebels on the other. This attempt to make an equivalence is at the very least problematic, and at the worst, dangerous. How can I say that? Well, one hyphenated word, red tagging. Our own Supreme Court defines this word as the act of labeling, branding, naming, and accusing individuals and or organizations of being left-leaning, subversives, communists, or terrorists. It is used as a strategy by state agents, particularly law enforcement agencies and the military, against those perceived to be threats or enemies of the state. The act of red tagging has become so prevalent and has been wielded with an absolute lack of careful consideration that it has cost people their livelihood, lives, or both. Red tagging is one end of the spectrum, whilst abductions and killings are at the other end, and sometimes it is a continuum where an individual gets red tagged first and walks around with this invisible scarlet letter, in this case, perhaps a letter C for communist instead of A. And that never really goes away and could become the ultimate reason why one day that individual ends up forcibly removed, disappeared, or killed. And I think this is what happened to Karen and Charlene. I personally believe that they may have been on the military's radar for some time until it was decided they had to go. And in their case, all roads lead back to Palparan.
In the many court hearings over the years concerning this case, it became clear that nothing ever got done within the infantry battalion that Barbaran commanded without his orders. He ran a tight ship. Karen and Shirlene's abduction could never have been the act of some rogue soldiers acting on their own. Many are convinced that they had always acted on someone else's orders and that someone was Barbaran. When he was finally arraigned in 2014, he refused to enter a plea, so the court entered a not guilty plea for him as per court rules. Many were, of course, happy he was finally in the position he was in, but some were not impressed with what they deemed as an unfair treatment of the retired general. The Association of Generals and Flag Officers, or AGFO, AGFO, an 800-strong members-only group, criticized the media for calling Palparan the butcher or verdugo in the local language. They believed that Palparan should be afforded a fair trial and due process instead of being tried in the court of public opinion. I thought this was quite ironic given that AGFO itself was being very loud and clear about what should be said about Palparan instead, essentially also trying to sway public opinion. AGFO praised Palparan for hardships and risks that he went through for putting his life on the line in service of the country, for his courage and leadership, for saving lives, for fighting communism. For AGFO and many soldiers still in active duty at that point, Palparan was a hero who did a great job. And fair enough. I'm not surprised by that position, but for those who suffered directly or indirectly at the hands of Palparan, there was a collective relief that he was finally being deprived of his freedom. Palparan became the first ever general to face civilian trial over human rights violations since the 70s. With years of mounting evidence and this recent reputation looming over him, it was not a surprise that his lawyers did everything to cushion the blow. They portrayed him as someone who saved lives, someone who needed to be protected and could therefore not be placed in a normal jail. There was a constant push to transfer him to a military jail, but the court in Bulacan did not allow it. Despite the constant protests outside the provincial jail and a perceived threat on Palparan's life inside that jail, the court thought it best to keep him there. This decision, however, was reversed a month later. The court eventually allowed a transfer to a military jail, citing a lack of funds to keep Palparan in Bulacan and the lack of security to keep him safe. This was, of course, not received well by the families of his victims as it became clear that he would be treated so much better in a military jail. This transfer was perceived as a coddling of men like Palparan, who were accused of grave human rights abuses. With the case against Palparan now in full motion by late 2014, the families of his victims needed to be yet again patient in their search for justice. Witnesses who we have gotten to know earlier in this episode had to retestify and be cross-examined yet again. Palparan also tried to stop that trial because why wouldn't he? Even his co-accused filed motions to junk the charges against them completely. Palparan also tried to apply for bail twice, but was ultimately denied 
twice. Palparan seemed like a desperate man and his desperation was somehow also projected by his legal team to the point that when they cross-examined Raymond Manalo, they demanded that he showed them pictures or a video footage of himself, Karen and Charlene as captives of the military. The absurdity of this demand is not to be overstated. In that time, it was not easy to maintain that patience or to not get angry, I would imagine, for Karen and Charlene's families. The case dragged on and on yet again. One judge even had to recuse herself due to allegations of partiality. But the most infuriating thing that took place during this period was something that, of course, Palparan did. He ran for office in 2016. Palparan was gunning for a Senate seat. As fate would correctly have it, though, Palparan lost and it would seem that his losing streak would continue as he was being charged for Raymond's abduction as a separate case, as well as the abduction of Raymond's brother and that of Manuel Merino in 2016. The retired general's bad luck continued and eventually culminated two years later in September 2018. On September 17, 2018, Palparan and two of his co-accused were found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of kidnapping and serious illegal detention of Karen Empeño and Sherlyn Kadapan, a legal victory that should not be underestimated. Palparan was then ordered to move to the new Bolivit prison to set his life sentence. All three men were then ordered to pay 100,000 pesos in civil indemnities and 200,000 pesos in moral damages to the heirs of Karen and Charlene. Palparan, a man who never gives up, appealed his conviction the very next day. By November, this appeal was denied. The case was then passed up to the Court of Appeals, who last year only affirmed Palparan's conviction and even modified his life sentence, making it one without the possibility of parole. He continues to deny the allegations against him as he blends into the rest of the prison population of Belibid, a shadow of the man he used to be, physically and otherwise. But enough of Palparan. To close this episode, I want to honor Karen, Charlene, Manuel, Raymond, Oscar, and the many others who still remain nameless victims of forced disappearances, illegal detentions, abductions, and state-sanctioned murders. Wherever you may place yourself in the political ideology spectrum, I think we can all agree that even if Karen or Charlene were proven to be part of the NPA, what was done to them, as witnessed by Raymond, was something that no one, absolutely no one, deserved. It is deeply ironic that the 800 generals and flag officers of AGFO demanded due process for Palparan and the others, but could not see that no due process was given to Karen and Charlene, who were merely suspected of supporting the NPA. For me, and you might disagree, but for me, they were just two young women, researchers, activists, who saw how society treated disenfranchised farmers whose history in our country is largely that of oppression, hardship, and broken promises by all governments since the Spanish left our shores. 
Karen and Charlene empathized and wanted to learn and be educated by being on the ground where this oppression took place, where these hardships are felt on real bodies and souls. They recorded and wrote down their experiences in the hope that one day someone else would read about what they learned and perhaps also empathize until more people understood the plight of our Filipino workers. The young women may appear idealistic to some, too leftist to others, but to me, they seemed to have wanted to become a force for good. And in some way, that force rippled through the years and led ultimately to the conviction of Juan Jovito Palparan. Karen and Sherlyn, mabuhay kayo. Lagim fam, thank you yet again for listening to this episode. I know it was a long one and... There was some pretty triggering stuff in there, but I do hope you still found it valuable and interesting. I'm also sorry for the delayed release of this episode. You knew the drama about the microphone, and now I have a new one. I hope you like the sound. I'm still getting to know the new microphone, and I hope that I will get better in finding out the features and how to best use this microphone for this podcast. Now, if you did like this episode, make sure to rate and review my podcast on Apple and Spotify because it helps with making my podcast more visible to those who do not know about it yet. Also, make sure to follow me on all my socials. Check the show notes for all the links to my Insta, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook accounts. Until next episode, thank you, Lagim Fam, Daghang Salamat, at Mabuhay!